Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verses 11 through 15. We're in this narrative of Paul to this young protege, Titus, uh, and he's left in this place um, called Crete to help train up, raise up, build up the church, and there's lots of real pragmatic instructions that that Paul gives Titus. So once you get to that passage, look up, and so I know that you're there. That would help me. Wow, you got there quick. Um, Let me ask you a question. Why are you here? I think I'm going to homogenize everyone's answer. Salvation. Salvation is why we're here. And many of us would say, I love Jesus, and uh, Jesus died for my sins. And salvation, in essence, the songs that you were singing about, a Messiah, and Hosanna, Redeemer, a Savior, are why we're here. There, there's a word we use a lot around redemption to describe that salvation. Grace. Grace is the word we talk about over and over again in our discussions about this salvation that's ours. No better word could describe it. Uh, just, Just stop for a second. Even though you might be extremely familiar with the subject matter, stop for a second and consider the absurdity of what God did. God, who always was perfect and holy and pure, decided to take on flesh, become like a man and leave heaven to come to this earth to die, the text says die, but, but it's much more gory than that. To be murdered and pulverized and beaten and murdered and crucified on behalf of our sin. Everything that we've done. All of our failures from, to redeem us from the sin and the slavery, from death, obviously from hell if we don't turn from our sins. All of the things that the scriptures say are applied to people who want to go it on their own. Jesus died to secure our salvation. That's what we say. And no word in all of the English language describes that experience on our perspective more than the word grace. Would you agree? God's grace. We'll define that in just a second. Salvation is the message of this book, cover to cover. It is, as some have said, the love letter to the church. This is how much God loves us in his redemption of sinners. And even though salvation is why you're here, probably, no uh, subject matter in our culture, in our world, is more misunderstood than the subject of salvation, okay? When it comes to the issue of how God saves sinners, or if God saves sinners, Um, It is not popular whatsoever to say that Jesus is it. It is not popular to say that there is only one way, and Jesus described it this way. It's a narrow way, and few find it. That's not a popular message. In fact, most people would say, that's too narrow. That's way too restrictive. That's intolerant. That's insensitive to suggest that there's only one way unto salvation. Salvation, um, that word, that idea, that concept in our culture has morphed into universalism, right? Everybody goes to heaven. Shoot, there are Christian, quote-unquote, Christian authors writing books like that. Just everyone goes. Or inclusivism, like just be sincere. Whatever version of truth you're searching for, right? If it is some kind of consciousness that you come to, something revealed in nature, some version of religion that you have, as long as there's sincerity in it, then you're in. God's just inclusive in in all things. That that is not what we teach here. That is not at all what we believe the scriptures say. In fact, the whole Bible says something totally radically different. And if we're going to use the culture's definition, totally intolerant. Because the gospel is an exclusive message. That's what we believe. 
And salvation comes to those who trust in the one and only provision for our salvation, and that is Jesus. That's what the gospel says. That's what the word of God says. That Jesus is the only sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and he is the only Savior God has provided. That's what we confess. In other words, to be blunt, you cannot be saved without confessing Jesus as Lord. You can't. That's what the Bible says. It's not me being kind of weird. This is exactly what it says. The narrow way that Jesus says that few find is the narrow way of the exclusivity of Jesus' death applied to sinners by faith and repentance. That's what it says, okay? And by the way, if you want proof for that exclusive thought, the cross is God's emphatic statement that there is no other way. Are you kidding me? God would come to this earth and die and suffer if there was options? There's, there's only one way, and God stamped it with his, the blood of his son, Jesus, okay? Now, I have used this analogy many times to describe to you the multiple beauties in the story of God and his redemption. Remember, I describe it as a diamond, and diamonds have many facets, and every facet's beautiful, you know? Um, you turn it, and this white side looks great, and you turn it, and that side looks beautiful, more colors, and the gospel is a story like that. So many different, wonderful, beautiful unbelievable angles at this story we call the good news. We have seen, and you're probably familiar with this, when, Je when Jesus talks in John 3 about this wonderful salvation, he talks about it with these terms, like new birth, spiritual birth, like a dawning that happens in the human heart, that we were lost, and I didn't care, and I didn't want God, I was stuck in my own ways, right? I say this term, excuse me, but stuck on stupid. That's where we were. God wakes us up to those realities and suddenly we want something we never wanted before. New birth. There's a reality that Romans talks about in Romans chapter 3. The apostle Paul, when he's writing about this wonderful, beautiful picture of the gospel, says that we are justified. That is the description that God doesn't see our sin anymore, just as if you never sinned because the payment for your sin was so great and perfect. You are now made right, as if it never happened. The scriptures go on, and, and Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we have now been reconciled. And most, most people don't know that there's this chasm war going on between God, but, but the outcome is clear. We do our thing our way. We want to be our own sovereign. And how does that work for you? Most of the horrendous things in the world have always been done under the, under the banner of I'm doing it my way. And the essence of what it is to do it your way is to war with God, at enmity with God is what the scripture says. And yet the beauty of the gospel says that God has reconciled us back to himself. That's a beautiful picture. The gospel also tells the story of, uh, in, in 1 John of how Jesus paid the ultimate and total price for sin. Like all of our behaviors and all of our thoughts and actions and inclinations, the intentions of our will, all of it is just messed up and all of it worthy of judgment. There's a debt that's been incurred that's unpayable, humanly speaking. Well, Jesus pays the beautiful price, the perfect price that satisfies God's standard once and for all, for all sin, the stuff you have yet to think about doing has been satisfied in Jesus. Beautiful Beautiful diamond, right? Well, there's one other little aspect of this wonderful, beautiful story of the gospel that we talk about all the time. Here, Paul points out the beauty of God's grace, this unmerited love and, and favor. 
And it's all summed up in Paul's mind with one name, the name of Jesus, okay? Uh, last week, uh, Paul, the pastor Paul, not the apostle Paul, although he might struggle with that, um, he did a great job of helping us understand uh, what Paul meant, the apostle, when he says, live in what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, have your life match your confession. Sound doctrine, what you believe, and how it affects your life. And so he gives all these real pragmatic instructions. Older men live this way. Older women live this way. Younger men, younger women, slaves, free, you all have a responsibility. Live in your role, live in your lane, based on the gospel for you, is what Paul helped us understand. It was extremely practical. In essence, it was, it was the apostle's description of the good life. This is the good life for God's people once the gospel dawns in their heart. The few verses that we look at today are the apostle's description of the source of the good life. So if last week Paul said, live this way, do these things, here is Paul saying, and here's where it comes from. Here's how it happens, okay? I've probably tried to tell you many times before, but I'm a real pragmatic guy, like super pragmatic. I'm a fix-it guy. By nature, I'm a mechanic. That's why you don't want to be counseled by me because um, I'll fix it. Um, it'll take about 10 minutes, right? Um, I confess that's a failure, not a strength, okay? But by nature, I'm inclined to have things get better, like now. I see things very quickly. Whether they're right or wrong, that's how it happens in, in my head. That part of me loves passages like last week. Old men, do this. I write that down. Do this and do that and do that. There's things to do. There's specifics to remember. There's actual detail in Paul's instructions like do this, don't do that. That's the pragmatic side of me. But I, I want to confess to you another thing about me. The pastor's heart of me gets a little nervous with details. Because here's how most people hear details. You hear details like these lists and these commandments, these specifics, and you write them down, and the human heart's inclination is to run off and do and make ladders out of these imperatives and somehow connect your relationship to God and the strength of your faith based on your performance of the details and the pastor heart of me, the heart that wants you so desperately to get the beauty of God's grace that what would woo you more than anything aren't the details but the beauty of Jesus. That's what I pray for. That somehow he is greater than all the other things you chase after. And so I get a little nervous with the details because if all you did last Sunday was write down the details and run off to work, I can already tell you I know how it turned out. It was a rough week. I mean, I know he said older women do this, but I didn't want to do that. Didn't feel like it. I've tried, and it didn't work out. Well, if what you heard last week was, well, here's your answer to that. Just keep trying. If work didn't work last week, try more work this week. That's not at all the good news. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 where he said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Details and lists and labor are condemnation because nobody can do it perfectly. It can just wear us out, right? And so this passage, that tension between what he tells us to do in the imperatives and what the grace of God frees us from, that tension is answered in this passage. If you've ever felt that tension of going, oh, I'm free, I'm free in, in the gospel. And then you read the details and go, but I struggled to get it done. 
then we are going to see that. In this, in this particular uh, section, it is the motivation. It is the driving force behind all the lists. And I want you to really, really lean into this. Because what Paul does here in this little section is give us the theology that drives our actions. It's interesting if you compare it to other writings of Paul. We went through Romans for a year or so, a couple of years ago. And, and Paul spent 11 chapters. I mean, we were probably nine months, 10 months in 11 chapters. That was all the theology. And then if you get to chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, he starts with this thought, okay, based on all this doctrine, go and live. Well, he flips it upside down in this section where last week he told us, here's how I want you to live. And now he drops the doctrine on us. Here's why. Exact opposite uh, direction. By the way, it's interesting to me, these four verses, 11 through 15, or 11 through 14, are one sentence in the original language. It was almost like Paul said it with no breath. It was as if Paul, after he gives the details, shouts the reason why. Like, this is why you do these things. Not because you're performing now. Not because you're trying to work your way through religion. That's, that's what that is all about. You are now free in Christ. So he kind of shouts, declares the reason for actions and obedience. And it's the word you hear all the time. It's the word we talk about all the time. It's the word that makes me cry all the time. It's the word grace. That's what he says. In fact, if you look at verse 11, remember he is just... He has followed up all these specific commands and he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In other words, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves and free, all of you people, you are to live this way because of grace. I mean, in essence, that's the whole point of this small section of scripture. Because of grace, empowered by grace is why you, you do it. So if you're one of those people who just like, give me the point, give me the point, I don't want to listen anymore, I'm going to give you the point. So if you write this down, you can go to sleep, I guess. Um, here's Paul's point. Grace is our motivation and our instruction for obedience to God. Grace is our motivation and instruction for obedience to God. Got it? Okay, let's, let's unpack this passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 11, we'll read through it and See what God has to say. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawless, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Every uh, person here is motivated by something. And every something in your life has a motivation. You remember if you were around at Easter, one of my points was that you do what you do, good, bad, and indifferent, whatever you do, because you're in this perpetual pursuit for joy. That's not the problem. This desire to be satisfied is part of how God made us. The problem is we look for it in the wrong places. Do you remember that? that? That's what's in us, okay? Paul here unpacks for the church, I think, the most amazing reasons for life and living that the church has ever heard, okay? And I call it Paul's outline of grace. If you want to just get the why of what we do, it is this outline of grace. So if you like points, here's three simple points. That the grace 
redeems our past, the grace of God reforms our present, and the grace of God rewards our future. Got it? So redeems our past, reforms our present, and rewards our future. Let's, uh, let's dig into those thoughts. Grace redeems our past. This is how Paul sees it in verse 11, and then we're going to skip to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Jesus, in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Paul says that Jesus gave himself, this is his phrase, to redeem us from all lawlessness. When I read that, it sounded so sanitary to me. I mean, that's just a crispy, churchy way to describe this horrendous thing. Here's what the scriptures tell us, that he was beaten and tortured and murdered and pulverized for my lust, my anger, my unfaithfulness, the murderous heart that I have, for my wandering mind, for my apathy, for the hoarding, for the selfishness, for the addictions, for the abuses given and the abuses endured. That's why. That's why. He came to set us free Scriptures, that idea of redeems to set us free by paying a price for every broken and twisted thing in me. I want you to notice something else in this text. Very, very important and totally mind-blowing. It's the very first phrase, for the grace of God has appeared. This is very, very huge, so, so listen up. The grace of God is not a subject matter. The grace of God is a person. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. He lived and he died and he rose again. It's so important that the church gets this, all right? Our faith isn't a belief in a series of facts. It is not mental assent to a list of things. Our faith is in a person, the living God, who came on a rescue mission for us. That's what our faith is in. It is the reality of what Jesus said when he was praying for us. They're going to abide in me and I in them. That's what's going to happen. We're part of him. We're adopted into his family. That's, that's the reality of this gospel. That's who this whole thing is about. It's about Jesus. Only he could redeem who we are and what we do and what we want to do, right? And, and notice something else. The grace of God, who is Jesus, appeared bringing salvation. Salvation, God brings salvation. I don't go and get salvation. I'm not spiritually inclined to help myself. In fact, the scriptures say I'm inclined to hurt myself with sin and ungodliness. But here's the reality of the gospel. God brings it through Jesus. He brings it to people and undeserving people. Notice also in the first sentence that he shows no favoritism. He brings a salvation for all people. That phrase means all kinds of people. This does not mean that everyone is saved. It isn't universalism, it isn't inclusivism, it is specific, and it goes like this, anyone who wants Jesus can have Jesus. That's how simple it is. Do you want him? Do you see your sin? Do you see Jesus as the one and only satisfaction of God's wrath for your sin? Then he's yours. You can have him if you, if you want him. The, in, in the gospel, there are no barriers, no color barriers, language. There's no nationality barriers. There's, there's no culture barriers. All around the world, Jesus is bringing salvation to every creed and every color. Do you know why? For God so loved the world. That's why. He loves us. And that's what the scriptures tell us. 
By the way, this is really cool. I love this meaning. The word appeared here in verse 11 is the word epiphany. Epiphany, and I suppose if there's a word I like to use to describe what it was like when I became a Christian, that would be a good word. Do you remember? Church, do you remember? Can you think back far enough to know when you were clueless, when you didn't know, when you were really at war with God, like you were your own sovereign and everything you did was a bad decision and you hurt yourself and other people? Do you remember? Do you remember the scars and the wounds? Do you remember all the lost feelings? Do you remember the angst in your soul? Do you remember where you were? I do, and I also remember that moment where everything changed. Like, I don't know what happened other than this sovereign move of God in my mind, and I go, I'm happy, and I'm happy because of Jesus. I didn't know much, but I knew that, and I fell in love. I don't know what else to describe it. Something happened on the inside. My affections went another way. Epiphany. Isn't that how it works, where he changes us? In fact, I'm going to invent a word. That's what happens to all of us when Jesus epiphanies on our hearts. I had an English teacher rebuke me before, so. He does that with a grace that redeems, buys us out of that mess. That's the gospel. Let me add the second kind of point of Paul's outline of grace, and that is this. If, if grace redeems our past, here's what else it does. It reforms our present. Look at verses 12 and then the end of verse 14. Now, this grace that has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, okay? To purify for himself, that's the end of verse 14, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The, uh, the word training is maybe in your version, it says teaching. It's the concept of a parent raising a child. And what do parents do with children? Well, we encourage them and we instruct them and discipline them. That's kind of the, the idea here, that the grace of God is that kind of tutor for God's people. It, it trains us, okay? Let me just, before I just assume you understand grace, I want you to lean in. If you don't know much about this Christian thing and if you're here for the first time, let me tell you the magnificence of God's grace. Some theologians have said that it is uh, unmerited favor and maybe that works for you and you need no clarity. Let me just help you get even more of this. This is the unearned love, affection, and compassion and favor of God in spite of you. This is the ultimate free gift. You, in fact, deserve the opposite, and yet God pours out his love and blessing on you. That is grace according to the scripture. Now, here's what Paul is saying here. That grace changes you, Christian. In fact, this, uh, this subject matter has been uh, debated over the years, this issue of lordship salvation, and the question goes like this. Does God just save people, or does God save people and change people? And many big-headed people, bigger than me, have debated this issue. And here's, here's the issue. Here's what some would say who do not believe that Jesus is also your Lord, that he doesn't change you. They would suggest that repentance isn't necessary for salvation. All you have to do is understand the facts of salvation, the gospel story. Just get it up here and you're good to go. That your, your will doesn't have to do uh, any work. That all you have to engage is your mind, okay? And in fact, good works aren't necessarily to follow salvation. Like you can just be saved and your life could never show it. That's the, that's the backside I consider the wrong argument to the lordship issue. If you have a feeling that that might be true, you're, you're messed up with verse 12. 
You can't get, verse 12 kills that concept. Look at verse 12 again. This salvation that God brings, this grace of God appearing, trains us, teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul gives us a kind of an absolute, uh, an absolute line in the sand, uh, a, a negative and a positive response to the grace of God in believers' heart, okay? That really does affect how we live, okay? Let me give you the negative first. He says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Guess what that means? The ungodliness is the things you do. The worldly passions are the things you want to do. God not only deals with the outside, he deals with the insides. The outside is what you're involved in or have done. The worldly passions are the things that kind of make their way to the surface that you are considering. The grace of God teaches us to say no to those things on the outside and the inside, according to Paul. Now, look at what he says positively. It does this too. It causes us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, before I tell you what that means, let me tell you when that happens. He says in verse 12, this present age, doesn't it? Do you see it, church? Many people would say, this gospel will change us in glory, and I'm certain we'll be more formed then. I'm certain we'll be perfected then. But Paul has in mind this gospel transformation now, this present age. So those people who argue that somehow change and conversion don't happen in the same relative time, Paul would say, no, it happens now, this present age. Now, these three words he throws down as the positive response to God's grace, self-control. The word self-control simply means like the self-restraint that we're to practice towards good things and against the bad things. This represents my diet, Okay. Uh, the last nine, ten weeks, I've been trying to eat better. So I eat green things now. I've never eaten green things before. My wife feeds me this stuff, and I just trust that she's not trying to kill me. But I don't like it, and I, and I, and I don't eat the bad things, all the breads and all the carbs. I just stay, stay away from that. That concept is exactly what he says here. This self-control, this God-given, spirit-generated self-control helps us to see the difference between those things that are bad and those things that are helpful. And we say no to those things and yes to the others. That's the self-control. Here's the second word he uses, upright. It's righteous conduct, and it specifically refers to how we treat other people. This is how we respond to others, our enemies, and those people that wound us and hurt us. This is what the gospel does. It helps us treat people rightly. In fact, Jesus said it in Matthew 7, doing to them what we would have them do to us. That's kind of the essence of what it is to live uprightly. And then he says godly lives. It's living for the glory of God and everything in our life. Like, God, your glory is more important than my happiness. God, your glory is more important than my way. God, you're the point of this story. I submit to you. That's what this godliness means here. And by the way, Paul says, remember, it's God's grace that teaches you to live this way. In other words, what that means is you can't gen this up on your own effort and strength. Who teaches us? Say it. God does. God's the one that teaches us to say no to the bad and yes to the good. I can't do this in my power, in my wisdom. Here's what I know, and I know you share this with me. We've tried it, haven't we? Shake your head if you've ever tried to do the Christian life by yourself. How did it go? Just like mine went. Nowhere. 
You can't gin this kind of effort up. God has to do it. God's grace uh, doesn't just save us and leave us kind of broken. It also, over time, transforms his people, right? It teaches us, according to this text, how to live. Listen to Paul Tripp, the author, as he describes the motivation behind our obedience. Obedience is deeply more than begrudging duty. It is a response of joyful willingness ignited by, stimulated by, and continued by a heart that has been captured by God's glory and goodness and grace. Thus, you cannot threaten, manipulate, or guilt a person into obedience. Only grace can produce this joyful submission. Only grace can open my blind eyes to the awesome glory of God. Only grace can free my heart from all the replacement awes that have kidnapped my, my heart. Only grace can give me back my awe of God. Only grace can transform me from a worshiper of self to a worshiper of God. Only grace can motivate me to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord until I've exited my little government of one and given myself to the work of something vastly bigger than me. The law cannot motivate me to keep the law. Grace. You get Paul's point here? The beauty of God's unearned favor, favor is teaching us to say no to the ungodly and yes to the righteous things. This is huge. Paul makes it clear how, how important, how powerful God's grace is towards changing us and shaping us. He says it affects our attitudes towards the things that are against God's kingdom. In other words, when we encounter God's grace, we don't any longer freely. Now, this is a key phrase, freely desire the things that he doesn't. Now, I'm not saying we don't struggle with those things. Every Once in a while, we, we go to the garbage bin, don't we? We do the wrong things, but we never wake up to do it. Christians don't wake up in the morning with their to-do list. Today, rebel against God. Today, become my own sovereign. Today, hurt other people. Today, hurt myself. Nobody I know who trusts in Christ wakes up to do those things. We fall into those things, and here's how you know God has changed your attitude. You hate it. You hate it, don't you? God, I'm sorry. It doesn't make me happy at all. I, I repent. I mean, I, I see what you see of it. I don't want it in my life. The grace of God reforms our appetites. I love this. This is the idea of the positive aspect of this grace. Here's how I describe it. I'm now satisfied with other things. <laughs> I used to think this list of things would make me happy. Now I know what will make me happy. I am satisfied with Jesus. And the more I get of Jesus, the more satisfied I am. That is now the reformed appetite. And then ultimately, here's what Paul's been saying from the very beginning, that this grace reforms our actions. And in fact, the end of verse 14, Paul says, to purify for himself a people who are zealous, you want to change that word to passionate, for good works. God makes a people through grace who are passionate for, for good works. In fact, if you want to see it this way, the grace of God makes a special people, not because we're known for what we abstain from, but because we're known for what we cling to, and that is Jesus. That's what makes us a people zealous for good works, because I'm anchored in Jesus by grace. Amen? Okay. The outcome, according to Paul, is passion and zeal. One last thought. The grace of God rewards our future. Verse 13. Again, this grace that has appeared, bringing salvation, teaching us to live um, in godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, verse 13, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That word appearing, remember I already told you what it means. 
epiphany. Here's another epiphany from Paul. In fact, the grace, according to him, of God reminds us to wait with expectation. The word waiting here simply speaks of an eager, confident expectation of something you're certain will happen. That's what the church does. It waits for Jesus. That's what I'm looking forward to. According to the text in verse 13, what does it say we're waiting for? As we wait for the appearing of the glory. The word glory is what it says we're waiting for. Now, if we said in the very first point that the grace of God is not a subject matter, that it's a person, then church, get this. The glory of God is also not a destination. It's a person. Jesus is God's glory. Come for sin and sinners. That's what the text tells us. Glory. What motivates our devotion Paul says, for the church is the certain future moment when Jesus comes back and we get to be with our king. He is the prize of this whole thing. That's what he says, right? So so think about how Paul has just kind of described in one sentence, in one breath, how the church is to live. He starts with an epiphany of grace, of God coming to this earth, and he finishes an about epiphany of God coming back for his people, and he says, live on the line. Live on the line knowing you've been fully forgiven and free in Jesus and someday he's coming back and it'll all be made right. Trust me, live on the line. God's glory and God's grace, both epiphanies in our hearts. Both of them are the same person. They are Jesus, our Savior. The church is not just looking for anybody. We're looking for somebody. Jesus, right? Listen to this. Jesus, he is our great God, not our greater God. For after him, no one is great. He is our great God, the object of our worship, creator and savior, forgiver of sins, final judge, the one to whom we pray, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is my savior, my deliverer, my redeemer, my rescuer. He is Jesus, the Christ, God's Messiah, God's anointed, the one who came in fulfillment of Old Testament promises and the one who is coming again. God's grace teaches us where we should look and to whom we should look as we wait. Amen? Church, here's what he's calling us to. We are never without supply. God has transformed us on the inside. And he has left the spirit of God to change us on the outside. Your inclinations have changed. Your want-tos have been readjusted. Your affections now are pointed to him. This salvation doesn't just get you from hell to heaven. It gets you to glory. It gets transformation. It gets character things where you will end up loving the things that God loves and doing the things that God's heart is connected to, not in perfection, but over time, progressing. Does that make sense? Change and salvation. Paul says grace drives in both. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I help, I uh, I pray that you help us this morning really let this sink in to understand the amazing truth that the work that you've done isn't just exclusively about sin forgiven, but it's about lives being changed. Help us, God, not to confuse the things that you say specifically as a way in which we can find our own security. Help us to trust and rest in Jesus alone as we know that the Spirit of God is making us like our Savior. God, let grace drive us. 
Let the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of this free gift drive our hearts towards the things of God that your text tells us will satisfy us the most. We pray for that help in Jesus' name. Amen.